Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll have Eric Woods with me as we discuss Batman Returns from 1992. We'll delve into the cast, background, and of course the fantastic, alluring score by Danny Elfman. All today, and it begins now. I am your host, Randy Andrews, and I've got Eric Woods with me today. I'd like to welcome you all to Soundtrack Alley, and you can listen to it through cinematicsound.net and through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and various other podcatchers. I'd also like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work through Xander Scores. Eric, it's good to have you on the show Let's get into this underrated Batman film. Absolutely. Let's do this. When was your first time seeing Batman Returns? I saw it in the theater, and it was possibly the biggest event film of, of uh, 1992. And it was 92, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was so long ago. Um, I know, right? And, and it was... I was so excited about seeing this movie in, was it Dolby Digital? I think it was the first Yeah, time it was. That, yeah, and I was so excited. I'm like, how is this going to sound? And the way movie theaters were, were set up was, I mean, you'd have your, your event films in like these two major uh, theaters. And uh, then you'd have your other films that have been out for a while in the smaller theaters. And well, for some reason I must have missed, you know, the week that it was out in the big theaters because we got in the smaller theaters. So there wasn't, it wasn't set up for Dolby digital. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I, at that time I couldn't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one, the first film, I think that where I felt the Dolby digital and the surround sound was Jurassic park a year later, but, yep. um, so I was excited about that, but yeah, I saw in the theater and, uh, having enjoyed the the original very much um i was really looking forward to seeing where they were going to take the character of batman and much like the first movie he plays second fiddle to the bad guys mm-hmm. and i was okay with that because danny devito and michelle pfeiffer and even um christopher walken is they're, they're all uh superb in this film and and i would love to have seen more of them. I mean, they were featured quite heavily, but it was just, Mm -hmm. give me more of this and give me more of this movie. I was just in it right from the beginning, especially, you know, when you see the first shot of Michael Keaton sitting at his desk and then he stands up, you know, all bold and triumphant and the Batman signal is illuminated behind him. I'm like, yep, this is, this is going to rock. Let's just get going. So I had a, I had a great time at the movies, uh, after seeing this film, it was, uh, 
it stuck with me and on subsequent watches, I, I still enjoy the movie just as much as I did when I saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it took me a while to actually see this movie. Um, let's see, this was 1992, so I was 12. <laughs> so I wasn't allowed to see this movie. Oh, no, uh, really? Because, yeah, it was uh, PG-13. My parents wouldn't let me see it. So okay. um, when I finally did see it, you know, it was really good. Like, I really enjoyed it. And I had seen Batman, the, the first one, and I enjoyed that one. This one I enjoyed more because I think we got more of a story because you already have established characters. Mm. And Batman Returns, to me, really gives us the vision of Gotham City. We see more of Gotham City. And we have, of course, the dark feel of it because it's a Tim Burton film. And some of the best, to me, best tragic music that is really complex. And also, it's super overlooked. I think the score by Danny Elfman is really overlooked for this film. Yeah, I think within the fan community, the film score fan community, um, I'm finding that a lot of them are more inclined to put Batman Returns on top of Batman as their favorite outing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are, are saying it's because of the way La La Land Records uh, was able to release the expanded version of the score and, and it just opened up that film score. Um, we got to hear more and, and, and look, I enjoyed the original album and I'm mm-hmm. going to be the first one to say that if they ever programmed that first album in the concert hall as a symphony, I'd be the first one in line. I think that album plays incredibly well. And that's where I really fell in love with the score and I heard a lot of people just coming down on that original album, mostly because a lot of music was missing, but I thought the sequencing, the, the order that the, what they did was, was actually top notch. And yes, having the expanded release really does flesh it all out. It does make it better for sure. I still Mm -hmm. prefer the original. It could be nostalgic uh, feelings, but I just find that to be, um, it's different. It's different than Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I like about the score. And that's what I like about the film as well. It, it does what a good sequel is supposed to do. It's supposed to be different. And this one, albeit in the same universe, same city, same characters, it does try to do something more. And, and, and that's what I really appreciate. I think I would... Definitely agree with you with that because with Batman, you were getting kind of part of his backstory, you know, because of dealing with the Joker and everything like that. But with this one, you've already established who he is, his character, what he can do, and you have to raise the ante. You have to increase the danger. You have to change the scenarios to make the film work. And I think that the number one villain for the film 
was definitely the penguin. And let's talk about him a little bit. Sure. Uh, because for one thing, with the the makeup, his makeup and how Stan Winston, who of course, as we know, was famous for the Terminator, uh, the new makeup for the Predator from is it Predator Two? He did Predator One and Predator Two. Okay, and then and he, he came did, in and he came in like at the last minute within Predator to completely redesign the monster because it wasn't working um, mm-hmm. because it was just this weird um, rubber suit that uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme was running around the jungle with. And so they had to go back to the drawing board and Stan Winston is the one that came up with the, the, the incredible design of now an iconic character mm-hmm. um, in film. Yeah. And then he also worked on the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park and he's a legend in practical effects and practical creature makeup and creature design. And I think for him to create the penguins look really moved away from previous depictions of the character because I mean, who of us hasn't seen a Batman comic with the penguin in it? And I mean, they, we've all seen, well, maybe some of us haven't seen, but uh, the 1966 Batman and how the Penguin was portrayed in that with a long nose and with a monocle and with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and a top hat and just waddling along. However, with this film, they gave Danny DeVito a pointy nose but they also created prosthetics to make his face look more avian. And they also studied deformities, such as the curvature of the spine, um, and even some of the comic book artists, which such as like Tim Sale, they drew the Penguin as deformed in different Batman comics. So, of course, they give him, you know, the three fingers, uh, for instance, you know, to where it made him look and feel more like a bird rather than a human. Yeah, I think the one, the casting choice was ingenious. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny DeVito, I think, deserved an Academy Award nomination for his work in this. He was, um, much like most of the Batman movies, he was a, the villain is the scene stealer. And he just, he brought this character to life and he made it his own. I mean, yes, he, he had the, had the help from Stan Winston with the prosthetics and the artists and, and everything like that. But he, he just made that character his own. And, and as much as, you know, they, they call him the penguin Mm -hmm. and he's sort of bird-like, it just really came into focus um, that he was, you know, he's human mm-hmm. and he is, um, you know, just completely and utterly deformed. And that's what scared off his parents to throw him away at the beginning of the movie. And as much as he was raised by penguins and has that sort of look, he just feels and sounds like someone who has an incredible amount of 
biological issues and, and deformities. And mm-hmm. you see it in his hands and his face and the way he walks, the way he breathes. There's a point where he's writing all the names of the firstborn children in the, um, the Hall of Records. Mm-hmm. And he's got this, this breathing, which can almost, um, you know, it's just, it's, I, it's tough to describe, but you can tell that he's, he's hard of breath. And yeah. I, again, that's probably part of what happened to him and his deformities. And he just, he can't catch his breath and he, and there's a certain way that he thinks. And, um, it's, he's an incredibly complex and very tragic character, which all comes out in Danny Elfman's brilliant music. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, there, there's a human element also to the character and, and, and Danny DeVito brings that out, um, as well. And he just wants to be accepted um, I think, and while also at the same time, you know, running this, uh, gang of criminals, but he, I think deep down inside, he just wants people, and, you know, being mayor or something is, is, is that, that was, it wasn't, I don't think it was for sinister reasons. I think it was mm-hmm. just like people can finally sort of adopt him and well, have he, approval. Yeah. Um, and in various Batman stories in the past, the penguin had run for mayor, like in okay. the comics. So, but it wasn't his decision, mm, right? In this in this movie, it was like no. hey, that's not what he wanted to do. But then, you know, the, he got the attention, and he played, and he enjoyed the intent of the attention, and just like and when and when that was destroyed by Bruce Wayne with the jammed signal and whatnot, you can just see the terror in his eyes, and it's like, what, 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 why is this happening to me? And, you know, and then he just turns, right? <laughs> but I think he, deep down inside, even though he couldn't get the approval from his parents, he wanted people to see him, again, not as Penguin, um, but as um, a Cobblepot, mm-hmm. um, you know, human being with a human name. So I, I love the character. He's, he's just so, he's, it's, it's so well-written. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's honestly perfect for Danny DeVito. Oh, I, I, indeed, there's I, I don't know how you can pick anybody else unless you're going to do the mustache, mustache twirling kind of penguin and and the you know like um, the yeah. old star gangster penguin. If you're going to go that way, fine. But if you're going to just if you're going to do it, then there this is really a unique way of doing it. And you're mm-hmm. right, Danny DeVito, probably the only guy at that time that could do it. Yeah. And he did it perfectly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that really plays to his character really well is the act that there are penguins surrounding him that are real, and then there are ones that are mechanical. And the production crew wanted to use king penguins, but the only tame ones were in a bird sanctuary in the Cotswolds, deep in the English countryside. So the birds were flown over to the States in a refrigerated hold of the plane, and so they were even given their own refrigerated trailer, their own swimming pool with a half ton of fresh ice every day and had fresh fish. And though the temperature outside was like almost 100 degrees, the entire set was refrigerated down to 35 degrees. So the birds had the uh, had bodyguards, 
and they enjoyed their experience because some of them even made it and produced eggs. So it's like, mm. okay, well, that that's actually good. So they were actually treated well, you know, for animals in a film. Mm. And I thought that was really cool because they, you know, they really tried instead of, you know, at the time, computer graphics weren't really that top notch. So using real penguins and mechanical penguins were the best way to go. Yeah, well, it was an interesting... Well, I mean, it's the, the effects and from the real penguins to the fake ones to, you know, the, there's the mechanical ones. There are CGI penguins mm-hmm. in the movie. And the way that they utilized those separate effects was seamless. Um, I don't think you could tell at first viewing that you weren't looking at real penguins the whole time. Mm-hmm. And again, Stan Winston is the one that created robotic penguin puppets for uh, the film. But it it just was like a great combination of, you know, CGI, robotics. Um, I think there were, there were men in suits as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course the real penguins, it, it was, it's seamless, flawless. Um, yeah. You can't, I tell. love the penguins running around with rockets on their back. I think mm-hmm. this is great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it played really well to his character. And I mean, when you have a character like the penguin, you've got to have some little bit of element of disbelief, you know, like, yeah, of course, have the penguins have rocket packs. Sure. I mean, and it's silly. it's Tim Burton silly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's the thing. There's a couple of silly moments in this in this movie that kind of took me out. But, I mean, what was I going to expect? It's Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think for the most part, it's it's pretty well grounded. Yeah. Um, in, and it, without, without a lot of silliness. And there are some incredible... Um, dramatic moments um, and and yeah so but when I mean it does get a little silly but even that it only happens for a little while and and then you know I bought that the penguins were going out and they were going to murder everybody and I just I mean I love even love the penguin set mm-hmm. it's just this great, this great abandoned lair at the zoo and yeah, that makes sense was, right so he's at the zoo yeah. that's where the penguins were the penguins raise him he's and <laughs> It's, it's just genius. The backstory is all there as well. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah, you don't need any extra explanation right. as yeah. to, you know, some movies, they have to explain everything to you. They have to explain who's this and what's going on. And, you know, I one of the things that I think about is, you know, when they try to narrate uh, a movie with... Um, I don't know, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for instance. You mm. know, they have a narrator right. in the film. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you don't need that with Batman. It's like, everybody knows who Batman is. Everybody knows who the Penguin is. Um, so you don't need this lengthy backstory into what happened. I mean, it all is created through kind of a montage of music, in a way. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, that's what I was just going to say. The whole (laughs) opening of the movie is, is it is exposition. Yeah. But it's six minutes and there's Mm. no dialogue. Mm -mm. It's a montage and it's all told through an incredibly well-edited 
shot sequence, but Danny Elfman is telling you everything that you need to know mm-hmm. right off the bat. Um, and it's six, seven minutes of just Elfman's music mm-hmm. for most of, for, I think for all of it, there's yeah. no dialogue and it's, it's Burton trusts Elfman. And when you have a scene like that, where it's six, seven minutes of, of nothing, no sound um, or well, no dialogue, man, you've got to trust your composer is going to bring out all the goods. And that whole opening sequence is, is masterful. And there's many more sequences like that. Um, in the film as well, where, mm-hmm. like I said, Elfman's doing a lot of heavy lifting in the storytelling department here. And that's what makes this score, I mean, it's just one aspect of its absolute brilliance. Yeah, and I believe that through the different characters that we get in this film compared to the first Batman, because in the first Batman, you were given Vicky Vale, you were given the Joker, but... The the difference, I think, with the first Batman and this Batman Returns is the fact that there were two soundtracks for the first Batman, and it kind of limited the score because they wanted a big-name singer for the film. But with this one, with Batman Returns, you didn't need that. You you were able to get Elfman's score. You don't need all this extra singing music uh, to heighten the awareness of what's going on. Yeah, and I don't think in Batman, Prince's songs were all that uh, obtrusive. I think you no, know, I, I, mean, I you know, I'm not saying know. that. I'm just you know, I'm just saying that there is a definite difference because it's a different tone, you know. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joker's wild and crazy. And, and during those sequences where Prince's music is playing, I think those are the perfect places to put it. And I mean, of course, and Prince um, contributed to to the love theme that Danny mm-hmm. Elfman used in, in the first movie. So, but this one, much like many sequels, is just darker and um, really, like I said, a vision of Tim Burton. It's not, it doesn't seem like studio interference Mm -hmm. this is while Burton was I think that he might have been handicapped a bit on the first one although the vision I mean it's unique I mean he created that whole gothic dark comic book look back in 1989 but this one I mean because that one feels like a, a 1940s noir Mm-hmm. And this one is truly plucked out of Tim Burton's uh, brain and put yeah. up on screen. This mm-hmm. is what he wanted to do with Batman all the time. And I'm pretty sure that there's comic book Batman purists that think it's crap. But, you know, this is definitely, as I said, Tim Burton's vision. And this is how he wanted to portray uh, Batman. And I say great because it was it was superb. Yeah. And another character that we can really talk about in regard to this film, which was also brilliantly cast, which was Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Now, when she was interviewed during a 2007 talk show interview, yeah, she was asked, 
And Michelle Pfeiffer stated that once the filming was over, she never wanted to see the costume again for as long as she lived. Each costume, if I remember right, yeah. Okay, so she went through 60 catsuits during the six-month shoot at a cost of $1,000 each. Mm. And there were things about Michelle Pfeiffer's character as Catwoman that uh, were very unique to her. And even with the fact that the catsuit was so tight that she had to lower her voice register in order for it to not come across as, like, high-pitched. So I found that really kind of funny. Yeah, I love the, I love the voice change, and I'm wondering... And I doubt it, but I'm wondering if it's kind of like a, a tip of the cap to, um, to Annette Benning, who was mm-hmm. originally cast because yeah. Annette Benning has that, that husky voice. And I mean, she, I think she would have been, I think she would have been perfect as well as Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, and I think Michelle Pfeiffer even lost the role to her. And then after Annette Benning was, uh, she became pregnant, then they gave the role back to Pfeiffer mm-hmm. and it's really tough to see anybody else in that role. And, you know, she plays essentially three different characters in this movie. You know, the, the, the wimpy lost, um, Selena before Mm -hmm. she's chucked out the window then she becomes by her boss. Right. And then she becomes Catwoman, but then she also becomes this very confused, unmasked woman. She's still Mm -hmm. very powerful. She's a very powerful female character in this she knows she's on she's in control after her transformation Mm -hmm. but i also feel that she's also incredibly confused because there must be some sort of mysticism in this movie because i mean all that sort of stuff got really crazy in the subsequent um batman movies where you know you had mr freeze and and poison ivy and bane okay everyone chill yeah (laughs) it was just they're all they're all like like cyborgs or not human so yeah. this one kind of playing up the fact that she was dead and then brought back to life by cats mm-hmm. i'm just wondering whether she's playing a walking dead character right because <laughs> yeah. that's what she looks like when she um when First, she goes back into her apartment yeah. she's very confused and so mm-hmm. like did she die and come back to life was it because of the cats i i don't know but that's what i thought was very interesting i thought that added some it added something to her confusion um, because she looked very uncomfortable when she wasn't wearing the mask. And, mm-hmm. um, but she was, you know, her whole persona changed uh, after that. Oh, yeah. She that became after, a bold I mean, character. She's, she's absolutely incredible. Um, and and it's, it's, such a, it's such an iconic look. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, but you know what I really liked? I ahead. like the subtle things that she did. One of my favorite things is when you first see her, then she's in the department store and she's, you know, burglarizing the place and she's breaking glass and whatnot. But she uses the whip kind of as a cat's tail mm-hmm. when she's walking around. It's just so sleeky and yeah, she's very sexy, but she uses that to her advantage to, mm-hmm. you know, take down very weak men. Yeah. And I don't find it a feminist thing. I just think that she's, she's playing against type. Mm-hmm. And 
and she knows that she can use her sexuality to get things from the weak ass men <laughs> in yeah. this movie with the except. I mean, even Batman is is just enamored with her, mm-hmm. both as Selena and Catwoman, and it distracts them. And there's so many great. Oh, God. I mean, the whole. Their banter one is pretty amazing. Oh, my God. It's And again, I wish there was more of that. As much as I liked Penguin, the chemistry between Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Keaton was incredible. Mm-hmm. More so than Keaton and um, uh, who played Kim Vicky Basinger? Dale? Kim Basinger. I think that yeah. these two, Pfeiffer and, Bert, um, and uh, Keaton, were exceptional together. Absolutely mm-hmm. exceptional. And uh, But yeah, she was... She is wonderful. And again, if I'm thinking of Academy Awards, I would have handed Michelle Pfeiffer one a nomination as well. She's she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, one thing that stands out in my mind is, I mean, so many like posters were made during that time with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in the cat suit, and um, and then now. Even her comic, I mean, the comic of Catwoman, uh, there was a artist named Art Germ that did a, a reimagining of Catwoman, and he used Catwoman's suit from uh, Batman Returns, but he needed to get permission from uh, Michelle Pfeiffer to make Catwoman look like Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, yeah, of course. He didn't get permission, so he had to create... Well, he had to create his own Catwoman. It was similar, but it wasn't wasn't a Michelle Pfeiffer, but it's a very iconic look to Mm -hmm. the the comic cover that uh, he created for that. And I just think... Her performance, uh, not only with that, but with her performance with Michael Keaton, uh, is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's she's in she's in control. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the whole time when she's on screen with Batman, and uh, the only time that she kind of lets her guard down. The only time she does let her guard down, and she's really upset about her um, doing so, is when Batman kicks her off the roof into the kitty litter, mm-hmm. and then when Penguin takes advantage of her and um, puts the uh, the umbrella helicopter thingy around her neck, and she flies away. It's you can tell she's she's really upset at herself, and she has to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for mo- for the most part, she's she's really um, in control. And I mean, one of the best moments, of course, is. Her uh, tumbling out of the department store after putting all the aerosol cans in the microwaves <laughs> and just letting out, letting it's it's just this one shot of her tumbling and right to camera, and then her saying meow and then having that explosion. It's just so amazing, mm-hmm. so amazing. I, I'd love to go back and watch that over and over again because you have almost this like Batman and Penguin are about to basically fight it out. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> here she comes, and everybody's like, "What is this?" It's it's remarkable. She's uh, 
She's so good. Again, perfectly cast, even though she didn't have the job initially. So it was just like, it was fate for her to have uh, this job. And, and for her, with the possibility of her returning, um, I mean, the thing is, every Catwoman that you see, you know, after this, everybody's trying to do the Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. And they can't. So stop doing that. You know, mm-hmm. be your own Catwoman. You're never going to be Michelle Pfeiffer. You're never. Mm-hmm. You're never going to have that look. You're never going to have that that persona. It's not going to happen. So stop trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, one of the the key moments in the film to me, like it still stands out in my mind, and I'm jumping a bit forward on my notes here, but the ballroom the uh, Mm -hmm. dancing scene where bruce and selena are dancing together during a masquerade ball and everybody's in a mask mask except bruce and selena and it suggests that they're you know they they really find a more well selena suggests that they find a more private spot but bruce's response is you mean take off our costumes (laughs) yeah and they both know who they are they both know that moment though not that moment they don't not until they uh, repeat the mistletoe line yeah because michelle pfeiffer gives off one of the best lines in the movie after that is um after that's done and then i guess they embrace again and she says well does this mean we have to fight now Hmm. And I love it because that's the first thing that pops up. <laughs> yeah. Not like, oh my God, you're Batman, you're Catwoman. No, it's like, oh, does this mean? And she's really upset about it. Like, does this mean we have to fight now? So good. Like for for how well written this script is, mm-hmm. that whole sequence is probably maybe the, the best. The, yeah, the reveal, the best written sequence, the best. Man, it looks so good too. The, oh mm-hmm. the cinematography is so incredible. And, um, and, and, and for everything that Michelle Pfeiffer does right in this film, her performance during that sequence, again, just shows how confused she is about this whole situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, she knows she wants to go and kill Max uh, for vengeance. Yeah. But she, she's really conflicted and about everything that's mm-hmm. happening to her in the past, oh, however long it had been. And then all of a sudden this reveal is, and it's, it's just, she, her look, it's, uh, it's not something I expected. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so, it's one of the most powerful moments in the movie. It's, it's, it's outstanding. It really is. Um, I was thinking about uh, how, well, how, how strong that whole scene is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the set, the, cinematography the lines for that whole set and then what they bring into it like the detail of how it was to recreate the phantom of the opera masquerade ball Mm. and how they brought in like there was a replica of the red death costume from the phantom of the opera and the wearer is even standing on a staircase where the phantom famously descended when he revealed was revealed in his costume. And 
I found that really unique, and I guess ironically, Joel Schumacher directed Batman uh, Forever and Batman and Robin, <laughs> and now he's dead. Um, but he also directed Phantom of the Opera, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's our you know six ways to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it it's so iconic, like like with it being a reimagining of that scene, it really shows that Bruce and Selena, they, um, they get this realization on their face, like not only Bruce, but also Selena. And they almost tighten their grip on each other yeah, and realize who they are. And it just, it's that revelation. It's like, Whoa, they just realized that. Yeah. And I, and I don't think Selena knows what she's doing at that moment. She's just mm-hmm. repeating something and there, there was no like, Oh, I better hide this. Cause I said this before. And then it's when uh, Bruce Wayne says it and halfway through saying the line that Michelle Pfeiffer or a uh, Catwoman says, well, the first time they say it, he slows things down. And then of course they, they break away and look at each other. And I mean, God, and, and Michelle Pfeiffer's just in tears. And yeah, like I said, then then the next line is, I mean, does that does that mean we have to fight now? It's, <laughs> it's like it's not like you're it, like I said, it, 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 there wasn't any there's one anything in between. It's like, oh my god, we have to fight now. <laughs> you know? and I was like, um, okay, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, really, the, the two scenes with the two of them unmasked are excellent. Like the whole sore spots mm-hmm. uh, sequence on the couch in Wayne Manor, you know, in front of that giant fireplace where they're you know, essentially making out, but they're all touching each other in the, in the spots that they injured each other with. Mm-hmm. And it was just uh it's a great bit of comedy, even though it's not like laugh out loud comedy. It's mm-hmm. just enough. It, it is part of, um, you know, their character. And, mm-hmm. and then of course they don't know. Um, I mean, although it doesn't, oh, I'm trying to think of, Maybe they do. I'm trying to think of why they would hide that sort of stuff if they didn't know. I mean, because what did he say? What did he say after the injury? And she touched him on the side. Oh, what did I he say that remember. was from? I can't remember. <laughs> so, um, but even that whole sequence of of when, uh, <laughs> you know, Bruce Wayne has to leave and they're trying to make up excuses and Alfred's going to take care of that. But I just love the way that, you know, Batman has a very... Um, bold and and um you know well put together uh changeover into costume yeah. right it's all very dramatic and mm-hmm. then here you got um you know selena in her putt putt mobile <laughs> comedically trying to get her catwoman suit on before she gets to where she needs to go it's um it's a wonderful contrast and i really like that little detail in yeah. the movie because and- i mean batman's been doing this forever and this is like you know all new to selena <laughs> yeah <laughs> And in some ways, they're n- no longer at odds with each other. Like they, it, it's almost like she's no longer become a villain to him. No, nor no, no. he He's, to her. They're in love. Yeah, they're definitely in love at that point. And, and I think the realization that for her, it's the inner struggle that she's having to kill Max. Yes. And considering that, you know, he essentially killed her. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but, you know, and then even before they knew who each other were, like, they have the fight on the roof, and, like, she pokes him through his armor with one of her um, cat claws. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really unique because his suit was even modified for this film to be more uh, maneuverable, more Mm. easier to work around. Because I guess in the first one, it wasn't so um, easy for him to move. And one of the (laughs) requests that Michael Keaton had requested was a zipper be added to the pants. <laughs> Probably in the back. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then that he doesn't wear boots in the film. They're actually Air Jordan six. Six. Oh really? And so they have like this upper which gives the boot like a, a boot like feeling, but it's a shoe. So I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, I've always liked this this costume, even though they did make modifications for it in Batman Returns, but I always like the simplification of it just being completely black, mm-hmm. the gold utility belt and the, you know, kind of the gold logo or the gold background logo with the black bat on it. And I love the simplicity of it. There's nothing overly complicated, like mm-hmm. the way the suits became in the subsequent movies. Yeah. There's Schumacher ones. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that you know, coming into returns, they didn't overly change it, although they did make a few modifications, but he just still looks like Batman like you knew back in 1989. Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked. It's like, because well, when he was on screen and I see him in this costume, I'm like, yeah, that's Batman. That's the Batman I remember. Mm-hmm. And then they start changing it all up. It's crazy. And they changed it all up even in the um, the Christopher Nolan yep. movies as well. It's just, you yeah. stick to that one iconic costume and you got to go with it. I mean, could you imagine them making all these changes to Indiana Jones? Throughout, you know, those movies, if they started changing the fedora and the jacket, they would have lost. It's iconic, right? So I think the keeping what ninety percent of what the Michael Keaton Batman uh, costume was, and just modifying a bit. Of course, there'd be some modifications, Mm -hmm. but keeping it very, very familiar to the first one, I thought was just great. So every time he was on screen, I was like, "Yeah, there's there's the Batman I remember," and it Mm -hmm. was always. Because it was great. It suited it suited this this Batman, this story, and suited Michael Keaton. It oh, was, yeah. It's, a, it's an iconic, iconic costume. Mm-hmm. I mean, it changed. You know, Batman really didn't look like this. We never saw him like this. I mean, mm-hmm. unless you read some of the comics, but, you know, when, well, you're, the when comics, you're used to a... It was, it was that iconic look. The, the yellow symbol hadn't ever gone away. Mm, yeah, and and then, I mean, at one point they finally did change it to a black symbol, but it was still in the center of his chest, and it wasn't yeah. like it wasn't the whole chest, you know. Right. It was yeah. the, the small little bat symbol, but it's like right. The yellow what is you, what is iconic. To. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's all you saw in the original poster of 1989's Batman, right? Mm-hmm. That's how they sold it. Yep. There weren't actors on the. On the poster, there wasn't a marquee. It was just the Batman symbol. And you knew what you were going to see. Yeah. And it's, that's how powerful the characters and this look is and that, that logo. Um, so stop tweaking it for the toys. Exactly. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. 
So uh, some of the little tidbits I, I noticed was that this was one of the first uh, Batman films to use computer-generated visual effects, like you had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier about the penguins, right. but also the shield on the Batmobile and um, the remote-controlled Batarang, which was interesting. Uh, but one thing that is still iconic, and we can talk about this a lot is the Batmobile. Uh, The Batmobile is just the one vehicle that remains the same and it should have stayed that way. It shouldn't have been modified. It shouldn't have taken on an empty look, but it should have stayed the iconic look from the Tim Burton Batman. Right. It's what it's it's just what you get used to. It's what you know. And mm-hmm. again, seeing it, seeing again in this movie, and seeing you get to see a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's amazing. I mean, especially when he's slowly creeping around the city, you know, doing his detective work. Mm-hmm. And you know, even the flame is still firing out the back while he's yeah. going like you know twenty down the the city streets. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, I've always loved that vehicle and it's so good. And they just messed around with it in the, in the next movies for, for no reason. Mm -mm. And I'm never, was never a fan of the tumbler in the, in the, even though they were going for more realism, that one looked like the most ridiculous, uh, vehicles I've ever seen. Although I do like the bat bike in uh, the Nolan movies, but, um, I mean, they were getting a little crazy in this movie with that, bat boat mm-hmm. um that just seemed a little excessive but that whole sequence is pretty amazing um yeah, it kind of reminded you of the uh 1966 batman in a way because yeah but there's some great miniature work in that too boat, like when yeah. he does the flip when he does oh, the flip yeah. around the tunnel it's it's pretty impressive but yeah the batmobile it's unbelievable it's, it's such a great design it's got this amazing art deco look that again, was moved over to the Batman the Animated Series as well. Mm-hmm. And that car never changed. It, it was... No, through that whole series, it continued oh, to stay the same. Yeah, it just fit That's what the made character. That series so good. Yeah, it fit the character so perfectly. And it was it was black. Mm-hmm. It was mysterious. Yep. You could hardly see it. And that was the big problem that we had in um, the Forever. Batman Forever and Batman yep. and Robin. It was just mm-hmm. it became more flashy. And, and it's yep. like, no, no, no. I mean, you, you shouldn't be able to... You shouldn't be able to see it. It, it should, should be. be ominous. Yes. And so it should almost yeah, strike again, fear just seeing it. Oh, totally. Totally. Um and it was it was really sad to see it kind of, you know, split into three parts and then disappear as a uh you know, down that narrow uh, alleyway. Never oh, to be yeah. seen again. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like the uh, missile car. <laughs> yeah, the missile car. But it's um it's a great vehicle. Yeah. I love that vehicle. It is. And, I mean, Elfman used uh, the Batmobile theme in this one just as effectively as he did in the original. Yeah. And uh, I think the entire aesthetic of Batman Returns uh, really changed the concept of what the theme should be like 
because so many people have played around with those themes and changed those themes. But Elfman, with his score and sticking with what he knows, and it really proved this score for Danny Elfman was truly a Tim Burton, Danny Elfman collaboration. Uh, really, and it, and it fit everything. It hit all the right notes. And, um, well, why don't we talk about a lot of that? Because um, there's so much through the score that really gives us uh, the iconic feel of the film and how many scenes for the film the score actually affects, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, go ahead. Uh, no, I mean, I, it's, I've mentioned it already that the score does a lot of, uh, heavy lifting mm-hmm. in the movie. It does a lot of the, the film storytelling and, and that's not to say that the, the film wouldn't have been any good without the music, but just the music, like any, like any film music, even if you have a great movie, you can always enhance it more with the music there's subtleties and Mm. and things that come out from the music that you aren't necessarily uh, getting emotionally when you see it on screen although you can see certain things there's an underlining emotion that's brought out by the music and we've already mentioned the opening sequence Mm -hmm. and exactly you know that's that's just elfman's skill as a composer um and he does this a lot in his scores. He's he's a he's a magician when it comes down to musical storytelling and just weaving in themes and creating the perfect atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing it in just a brilliant musical way that you know, away from the film and out of context, you still get a sense of what the music is about and yeah. what is happening in the film at that point just by listening to the music. That's an incredible skill that not too many film composers have. The great ones do. Mm-hmm. And, but what I think is, although there's a much, as much, as much as there is a bit of goofiness in the score, and it it's matches <laughs> the, the Red Triangle Gang. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely. It, it, it is way more tragic. Mm hmm. Um, and I, of course, that's the key to this this film is the tragedy of Penguin, and that is if you don't get that right, then you're just going to miss the mark as mm-hmm. to what the Penguin really truly is. And there's so many, like I said, underlining things that happen in the in the music that kind of set off a, a little bit of like, oh, that's he's a little bit more human in this moment or mm-hmm. he is very sinister and what he's saying is is a lie or you know it's um and it's not the, only oh i'm sorry no 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 it's okay it uh, just there's a yeah it, i mean and then we can go on to catwoman's music oh yeah more to say about the I, penguin. I was i was thinking of that very thing with with catwoman uh one thing that really stands out to me is the scene where she actually transforms into Catwoman. Oh, um, because the music, that whole scene is Elfman being let loose, being able to yeah. give us that storytelling without any dialogue. 
It's perfect. It is. And yeah, I think that the, this, the transformation of Selena, I think is just one of the best Elfman cues of all time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there is the inventiveness of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the meowing strings is super clever. It seems oh, yeah. obvious, mm-hmm. but it's super clever, especially the way that he, he does it. Um, it's very musical. Um, but the, even the, the opening of that sequence, it's, it's just terrifying. It's horrifying when those cats show up and they start, you know, licking Selena and nobble, nibbling on her fingers. And, mm-hmm. um, but then again, you, you get this sense of, of a transformation of the real person pretty much coming alive because when she starts trashing her apartment, the, the Catwoman theme really comes alive. Mm-hmm. And, and again, there's no dialogue. Elfman's yeah. doing all the, the storytelling for you in his music. And what's so great about this is that if you played this music for somebody who has no idea what the film is about, and you say it's about a heroic guy in a bat costume, <laughs> it's about a, a, a tragic character who's deformed and is not accepted by his parents, and of a person who essentially transforms into a cat, and then you play them those three themes together, mm-hmm. or you play an assemblance of cues from this, from this movie, they're going to understand exactly what's happening because yeah. you hear that in the music and it's Danny Elfman is a genius. And then that's where, you know, in this film, if you ever want to see why he's so great, just check out Batman returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a really good way of seeing Elfman at his very best um, even with tragedy, uh, because that's a lot of what the film represents, like we've we've talked about. So what I'd like to do is have us play a few of these cues. Um, first, like we've talked about, I'd like to play Birth of the Penguin, main title, and then play The Shadow of Doom and Clown Attack, and then Introducing the Bat. Now these illustrate... Elfman's ability to construct the complex tones for the film, for the villains, and even really how the Penguin gains control of not only his minions, but of people in general, like especially when he runs for mayor, and how people were throwing food at him, and that whole scene, he chose not to have a stunt double because he wanted it to feel more real. And I thought that was really cool. What do you think of these? I think we touched upon the main title a couple of times already, mm-hmm. and it's oh, yeah. it, it's what I don't. Well, you know what I didn't mention was the kind of the 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 quirky sense of humor that Danny Elfman still has in this sequence, and it's the the kind of Christmas styled music that he plays. Oh with yeah, the, you know, the la 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 las and the Christmas bells, and it, mm-hmm. he sets the tone of the season as well. Not so much the as well as the characters, but it's just like hey. It's Christmas time. And so, you know, he's playing these somewhat cheerful. Like the uh, and the. Oh, it's, it, yeah. And yeah. it's, it's just, it's fantastic. And I, yep. Oh yeah. And in, in the way, and his orchestrations are also absolutely incredible so that, you know, when you hear these instruments, you know exactly what character is for. So, you know, it's the pluck harp and the contrabass um, clarinet for the penguin. You mm-hmm. get those high, um, Bowie strings for for a Catwoman, and of course the very strong uh, march 
uh, for for Batman. It's it's mm-hmm. all very clear, clear as day. And then, and there's an incredible uh, moment when uh, you know Baby Penguin is thrown off the bridge in its bassinet down the river and into the into the abandoned zoo, and that's when Batman's theme starts, and you just hear the um, the under kind of rumblings of it. Mm-hmm. Before the title comes comes out, and uh, it's just so damn good to hear <laughs> that theme, and then it plays yeah. in counterpoint with Penguin's theme throughout that whole sequence. So you know it's a Batman movie, but also Penguin's incredibly important because we're still following that bassinet to its final resting spot. Mm-hmm. Stories being told in that whole sequence, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. One of the best main titles I think you'll ever witness. It's yeah. so good. It's it's really well put together. So let's go ahead and play these cues.
right, so next, I'd like to delve into Kitty Party, Selena Transforms, Penguin's Grand Deed, The Cemetery, and Bad Bad Dog, Batman vs. Circus, and Selena's Shopping Spree. Now, these cues, to me, show that Elfman can do the subtle as well as complex, even with, like, uh, the term that comes to mind is Mickey Mousing, especially even with the circus instruments of a bygone era, and even bringing us into a type of scoring that he started with, with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and some of Elfman's early work with Oingo Boingo. I, I think it's, it's a bit chaotic, but also poetic um, for how he displays that. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, there's a lot to digest in these mm-hmm. cues. There's so much to say. Um, we've said a lot about the Selena transformation sequence. It's just absolutely sinister madness. And I, and I absolutely love everything that Danny Elfman did in this sequence. And of course, the incredible f- performance by you know Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, it's all it's all magnificent. It's just great cinema. Um, I really like the, the the penguin's grand deed where he you know fakes saving the baby, mm-hmm. but his uh, his arrival through the sewer has this kind of heroic, almost mocking heroic um, playing of his theme in a major mode. It's it's all very triumphant, but you know it's phony, mm-hmm. and I think Danny Elfman knew that too. So he's just going to play this you know over the top heroic version of Penguin's theme when he absolutely did not deserve it. And I thought that that was, um, you know, he, he, you know, Penguin also thinks deep down inside that this is some sort of redemption. And so I think deep down inside, he actually is feeling heroic, even though it's phony. And it's also very, you know, melodramatic. and, And I absolutely love that, that type of scoring. And, you know, another incredible, a moment where Elfman is just allowed to take over and just tell the story is the cemetery sequence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the first time where you, you, you really feel the, that, that um, Oswald is, is human mm-hmm. and it might come out only briefly, but you almost feel for him at that moment, even yeah. though, um, even though he still has this plot to kill every firstborn in Gotham um, you know, he tells this very overly melodramatic speech about him not being wanted and and this and that. But Elfman plays it somewhat very. It's very overly dramatic, mm-hmm. very theatrical. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. It's it's just absolutely spot on. But he it, it really does make show. you feel something. Oh, totally! It makes you really feel something. And then um, you know when we get to uh, some of the action material um again it's interesting to contrast the circus music with the, the kind of deadly serious batman theme and mm-hmm. so you're thinking it's all wild and crazy and fun and and weird but then you know when batman's on it's like oh wait hold on a minute this is yeah <laughs> this is serious and he's yeah. gonna kick some butt and and he and he does it that way and i also absolutely love the way Elfman again is playing with Selena's music while she's in the department store. Yeah. And you know, he's playing with the theme as much as Pfeiffer's playing with those two cops 
and it's um it's superb but i think the way that the the queue ends i think it's about 20 seconds left in the queue and you get those 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 snares as selena catwoman is you know flips towards uh, the camera before she says meow and what i absolutely love is elfman right at the end of that queue kind of gives a meow on the bow Mm -hmm. and then everything you know explodes and we get to another action queue but there's just so much fun and playfulness and 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 melodrama and theatricalness it's musical storytelling so just tell me like when you're listening to these cues are you seeing or hearing or are you feeling the story do you know what's happening with these cues because i think it just i can listen to this all day um, because it's also not just great film music it's great music yeah it stands on its own so perfectly oh yeah and this creates i mean this is one of the reasons why Danny Elfman is such a good composer um, because of films like this uh, presenting the tragic uh, villain and the um, chaotic female villain and bringing a bolder Batman theme uh, from even the first film. And so uh, I, I really like how these cues play off of one another. Like yeah. even where you have a scene with Batman, Penguin, and Catwoman all in the same cue. <laughs> right. You right. know, it, it's just really well constructed and it's weaved, weaved in so perfectly. Yeah. Great composers do that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and play these cues. Thank you. 
All right, so sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. Lastly today, there will be a combination of some different cues that stand out with Bruce and Selena, as well as our tragic penguin. I'll be playing Sore Spots, Bruce's Closet, Revealed, Party Crasher, Final Confrontation, Finale, and lastly, A Shadow of Doubt, and end credits. Now, personally, I find the flawed character of the Penguin to be really brilliantly scripted because uh, Tim Burton really did the casting so well with this, having uh, Danny DeVito be the Penguin. Uh, Bruce's confusing relationship with Catwoman to be alluring and sexual and it's utterly wonderful in its presentation. And so I'm, I'm just so impressed with Danny Elfman's abilities to weave such a dark and wondrous tale in this music because it stands out so clear. Now, Eric, what are your impressions toward these? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just amazing that mm-hmm. for just the sheer amount of music that was written for this for this movie and for the the amount of characters that had been juggled around and for so much happening on screen that you have this coherent, um, beautiful score, exciting score, wondrous score, just fantastic music. And as I said, just plays absolutely brilliantly on its own as well. And again, if I could see this, um, you know, in a symphony, I would be the first one in line. Oh yeah. But again, it's it's it starts it starts with the writers. If you can get yourself a good script and a good story, Daniel Waters wrote the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, he came up with the story with Sam Hamm, and and then you get some of the most incredible visuals um, that you know shot by Stefan Chapsky, mm-hmm. who had worked with uh, Burton uh, during this time. Incredible sets. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think we were talking about this uh, off the air that I don't think any of this was shot outside. I think everything was shot on a set and, you know, map paintings were used. And But I think, every, I don't know how many sound stages were used, but the detail in, in everything that you see in this film, uh, Gothic, Gothic, Gotham comes alive. It is and, Gothic, you know, Gotham. Gotham during... <laughs> yeah, and it's Gotham. It's Gotham during Christmas, mm-hmm. and and that's tough to do as well with all the fake snow and and things of that sort. But it just looks alive. That's um, an it's an incredible, unique look for for Gotham, and I think that it's a uh, yeah. Whoever came up with the the set design, the production production designer, uh, should be applauded as well. Um, so, you know, Danny Elfman has this, he's handed this movie that is very much in Tim Burton's style. You know, they got to work again before this on Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. again, another sort of Christmas classic mm-hmm. and it's very melodramatic and over the top and and tragic. And so that comes, you know, that's taken out of that film and put into this one into the Penguin character and, you know, but Danny Elfman's bringing that kind of aesthetic you know, that that's the real Danny Elfman mm-hmm. as much as Batman is. I mean, that's obviously Danny Elfman too. Um, you know, it's just this big, bold superhero score, but I think mm-hmm. that 
when it comes down to a personal Batman score, there's no doubt that Batman Returns uh, is it. Mm-hmm. This is what I think Elfman always wanted to compose. And he loves the dark. He loves the dreary. He loves yeah. the sad. He loves the tragic tragedy. That turns him on. And mm-hmm. um, you can tell by, by listening to this. And there's, you know, he, he, he's playful. He has fun with, with his score, you know, especially during the sore spots um, mm-hmm. sequence. And we talked about how there's an interchanging between the Batman theme and, and the Selena Catwoman theme, especially when they're transforming into their, um, their costumes. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and of course there's the, um, the ballroom sequence, which is, it's a, it's the revealing music again is very subtle. It's mm-hmm. all kind of like from Selena's point of view. But then you know, the final confrontation is just, what, 10 minutes long? Yeah. And it, uh, in order to keep a track going that long without it becoming boring is definitely a skill. And Elfman is just interweaving theme after theme after theme after theme, always keeping it interesting, mm-hmm. but always understanding what the emotion is, what the tone is, what he needs to say in these sequences. And and you know penguin's final death you know when he rises from the grave essentially comes back and talks a bunch of nonsense and then finally eventually you know keels over and is ceremoniously ceremoniously yeah. taken by the, you by know, the Emperor penguins. penguins into the water <laughs> yep. oh my god and the music it's just the music is it's really touching mm-hmm. it's really sad it it captures everything about the penguin and you again you're feeling something for him he's an abandoned child mm-hmm. and as much as he's evil and he wanted to do a lot of evil things um he's a womanizer he's gross mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a human part about him and and as much as it's not humans that care about him it's the animals that raised him <laughs> it's yeah. the penguins and they are so upset and sad and this whole you know, processional into his watery grave is, it's just classic tragedy. Yeah. It's classic Tim Burton. It's classic Danny Elfman. And, uh, and then of course it ends just in the most perfect way, you know, great end credit suite where you return to your Batman theme, but then you're interweaving the fresh new themes, um, that you've created and you put those into a standalone piece of music that is a piece of pure music that is supposed to be enjoyed as music. Yep. And Danny Elfman, uh, the the end credits suite. Oh, and the thing is, in the in the film, it's a truncated suite. Um, I think some of it's chopped out. So later on in the La La Land um, release, um, they have the end credits as initially recorded. So you get some extra um, music that way for how Elfman. Uh, initially crafted his end credit suite so and i believe that's just, what we'll hear oh fantastic because so, it's yeah there's there's a, that, an inc- it's incredible the expanded you know la la land yeah movies. there's an old it's called so. the alternate end credits mm-hmm. but it's the original end credits and it's what i and also what i like about it is that it the, the piece doesn't really resolve mm-hmm. much like the film yeah. the film doesn't really resolve the penguin story resolves but we now know that Selena is still alive. still alive. And so there is no resolution. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And it's just a perfect way to, to end this story with the hopes that maybe we'd get to see them again. But of course we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Tragically. <laughs>
tragically, <laughs> here's the theme, tragically, yep. we got Joel Schumacher instead. Yeah. But we did get Elliot Goldenthal's incredible score, so that's oh, yeah. the, that's the only shining point on of those movies. We may Absolutely. have to go into that. So, uh, so yeah, Eric, I want to thank you for coming on with me for Batman Returns. Um, I'm sure this won't be... Uh, your last time to be on the show <laughs> you you'll be a frequent visitor uh on soundtrack alley as it's been uh welcomed into the cinematic sound radio family yeah yeah and it's great to have you on board it's I'm fantastic really glad i'm glad here. more people are able to hear this show it's mm-hmm. uh, it's always been fun to be on and um i'm just glad you're here and you're able to get a little bit more exposure and um but I also like the fact that you forced me to watch these movies again. It's not that I don't want to. It's like, wow, I, I don't, I don't remember the last time I saw Batman Returns, and I'm glad that uh, that I got a chance to re- to revisit it again. It was um, definitely a, a wonderful night at the movies, whether that's in my living room or my bedroom, uh, watching <laughs> yeah. this movie. But it was just great to revisit this. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, people can email me at soundtrackalley at gmail um, check out my website, soundtrackalley.com, for the archive of my old shows. Um, also, you can find it through the link um, that Eric, of course, has provided uh, to the Anchor uh, website or Anchor feed. Because um, I'll be releasing the archive shows through there. Um uh, of all the old Soundtrack Alley uh, podcasts uh, that people can be able to listen to and they can enjoy them that way. Uh, But for the time that I've now gotten to to be able to be on Cinematic Sound Radio, um, it's all new. It'll all be new material. (laughs) Yes. So that I'm looking forward to. And uh, sometime in the future, uh, we'll be getting some more superhero films. Uh, I have one coming up uh, in the future. <laughs> It'll be a little bit, but uh, we'll get that uh, at a later date. I'm not going to reveal it. <laughs> Keep us in suspense. Definitely. So, Eric, once again, thank you for being on the show. With that, let's play these cues and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>